Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast, post-election edition. <laughs> Steve Krupa and I are, uh, this is Tom Salemi, your introduction, introduction guy. I'm here with our host, Steve Krupa of the Silas Group. Hello, Steve. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm, I'm uh, recovering. Thank you yeah. for asking. Yeah, it was, uh, You and everybody else in the Northeast. Yeah, I feel like we need to have another Digital Health Innovation Summit because uh, I believe everyone in the room probably didn't think this was going to happen. So the tone of our discussions... In some yeah. regard, we're sort of looking toward, a, I think, a, a, a Hillary administration or a Clinton administration, and uh, it's not going to be that. So uh, interesting in, 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 in changing times ahead, which is that a good thing for a VC or a bad thing? Because there's going to be disruption, uh, but there's also just great uncertainty. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure it's a good thing. I, I think we you know, had a set of expectations about where a Democratic president would take uh, sort of the government portion of health care, which is big. Yeah. You know, bigger than 50%, including the ACA, which uh, the president-elect is vowed to repeal and replace. And so it adds uncertainty in, in, in the area uh, of health care across the board. We don't know who's going to run HHS. We don't know what their ideologies are going to be. Um, but I think we'll find out pretty quickly uh, where, that, where all that stuff starts to uh, uh, shape out in the first uh, couple of months of the new presidency. So. Yeah, it's it's going to happen quick, too, with the uh, Republican Congress. They've got two years until midterms, so I'm sure they'll do it whatever they can right away. They will. I mean, you know, I don't know. People probably have a rooting interest in one direction or another on that issue, many issues. I think, I think there's a filibuster uh, is maintained for the Democrats so that they'll still be in, in on any negotiations. Uh, yeah, although I think it, they've got the nuclear option, right? I mean, we don't want to stray too, too far <laughs> down there. Well, this is a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yep. let's go back to last week, the happier yep. days when we were at the Digital Health Innovation Summit in yep. Boston. You, were, uh, you, you played many roles. You did the on-stage interview with Dan Burnt, which we played last yep. week. This week, we're going to uh, dip into a few private interviews that you had uh, with, uh, with, a ten- with a couple of the panelists there. Both uh, analytics, both very different companies. Uh, the first one we'll, we'll tee up who is uh, Michael Weintraub, who's the, the CEO of Optum Analytics, or has been until of late. He's sort of transitioning into another role, and we'll let, uh, let him talk about that in the podcast. But uh, I haven't heard these yet, so I can't even ah. pretend that I've heard them. Uh, okay. What was your takeaway from your conversation with Michael? Well, you know, Michael has uh, spent a lot of time in the analytics space in healthcare, and he's uh, experienced the business from startup to, as he would describe it, scale, um, while he was uh, while he was at Optum Analytics, and I think he does he he provides uh, some interesting insight into the value of uh, the analytics companies um, across that across that space, and um, he also gives us a little bit of information about what his next journey is going to be. And I think maybe I'll just leave it at that and okay. let the and let the interview speak for itself. I like I like it being cryptic, and uh, Optum, of course, is one of our very special sponsors of the yep. conference, so we're very happy to have their support. And then following the break, you had a conversation with uh, Mudit Garg. He's the CEO of Analytics MD. What was, uh, what was your takeaway from that conversation? Yeah, so back-to-back uh, analytics discussions. Uh, analytics MD is very early, well, I wouldn't say very early stage, but probably a much, a much earlier stage than Optum, of course, and, and, and new to the analytics space over the last couple of years. But they are 
you know, beginning to use machine learning and uh, across data sets from hospital operations uh, to try to do predictive analytics and predictive modeling um, around operational efficiency inside hospitals. If you have ever, obviously anybody that goes into a hospital, you can't help but marvel at sort of the massive number of employees that are doing all sorts of stuff on, in any given moment. And uh, one of the tricks to being competitive uh, is figuring out how to staff and, and organize those activities. And so Analytics MD is trying to provide uh, data solutions to, to guide managers on how to run various departments inside of hospitals. And it's very interesting. He's a young guy, uh, very bright, and you know, we did a, I think we did a couple of use cases on this product uh, in the conversation. Excellent. And, and we will have uh, both of these interviews in video form, too. These are done on camera, so those will be coming out in the coming weeks. I'll have more details about that when, we, uh, when I do the break in between the two interviews. So, all right, well, let's, uh, let's roll these, uh, these conversations. Michael Weintraub, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we've got... Uh, got a great story to talk about in terms of the analytics space. So you were, I, I noticed out of the conference, a lot of focus on analytics. I've always got to ask people, what the heck is the analytics doing? Because, you know, baseball fan, cybermetrics, all that cool stuff, love the analytical side of things. But you really were at the beginning of this, this trend at Umedica. So I'm going to ask you to try to remember what you were thinking when you started to do this. Uh, back when you started that company? What was I thinking? Um, <laughs> you know, analytics is a little bit like uh, oxygen. Everyone's got it. Everyone needs it. Uh, everything, everyone thinks they own it. Um, and uh, I've been at this for about 35 years, but really, it's really only come of age in the past decade. And um, what we did with Humedica back in 2008 is really took a big gamble. You know, with um, entrepreneurship, it's a little bit about opportunity, a little bit about risk. Otherwise put, they say there's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. <laughs> and um, when Obama was still senator, when EMRs were not really where they are today, um, we had a hunch, myself and uh, my two co-founders, A.G. Breitenstein and Alan Kamer, that um, there was going to come a time when healthcare data would be looked at the same way other industries look at their data, like financial services and so forth. And so we really took the gamble, raised capital in 2008, and built the first at-scale manufacturing process to study clinical, financial, and operational data and really put together a longitudinal cross-continuum view of the journey of a patient through the system, inpatient care, ambulatory care, the pharmacy, the medication, so forth. And really to do that at a time when most systems had a handful or two or more EMRs, lots of different claims, data feeds, lots of different operational systems um, was complex. But um, we built the system um, in 2008, 2009. We launched quickly um, and raised significant capital at the time today um, we're seeing stories of Can a lot more capital. Can you tell us how much you raised? Uh, we raised $63 million. We raised $30 million in a Series A uh, to build and $30 million in a, $33 million in a Series B to deploy and right. scale. And so we moved pretty quickly. Um, the vision we had was to really allow 
a large academic medical center, integrated delivery network, um, ACO, large multi-specialty medical group, to really understand their manufacturing process, their inputs, their processes, and their outputs. Right. And um, we grew fairly quickly. And we also then um, took that data and de-identified it and utilized that to build predictive models and disease models to allow you to really start doing what we call today is predictive analytics, prescriptive analytics. So we were really the first to do it. Um, we've grown quickly. Um, and we also then took that data and utilized it in other industries, such as life sciences, mm-hmm. totally de-identified. We call it HIPAA plus, not just PHI and HIPAA, but also this is about large scans of the universe, not provider-level information, not physician-level information, of course. And so the markets are all blending payers, providers, large self-insured employers. Life science companies are all trying to get their arms around the consuming patient. So grew quickly, um, and uh, then in uh, 2013, we, uh, after four very quick years, we sold the business right. to Optum. Right. A traditional acquirer of businesses like this, yes. And then you got to build an an, run run their analytics business, basically, uh, from that point forward. Yeah, we were not really for sale. Um, We were growing um, very quickly, um, and it was much more of a preemptive, strategic conversation. Optum, um, you know, is very significant out there with their scale and their ecosystem. Um, They're eighty billion dollars today. They were thirty billion when I got to know them. And they had a legacy of 20 years of really um, powerful analytics with claims data. Right. And they were looking for um, what I call uh, the Manhattan Project. They were looking for that clinical atom, that capability, and the team. And so um, we joined Optum in January 17th, to be exact, um, of 2013. Those kind of days, those are the kind of days you, you always remember. You don't forget those, 3.30 p.m. Yeah. And um, we, um, we made a decision together to do a bit of a reverse integration. We took the population health, big data analytics assets of Optum, married it with our assets uh, under the leadership team of Humedica with the addition of other Optum executives. Wow. And um, it's been a, a fast four years, four years in a couple months. And so it's grown very rapidly. The, the business was about 100 people when we started. Today it's approaching 1,000 people. Wow. And um, we're in all 50 states. We're quickly approaching, touching almost 100 million patients with our data. And uh, it's been quite a ride. It's been, a, um, it's been going back to school for me in a great way. You know, you always want to contribute but learn, and learning about the scale um, has been phenomenal. My, um, I like to say my average survival index, because I've been involved in six startups, is about 18 months. Right. And so I surprised myself staying as long as I did. But um, to be able to innovate at scale and to take innovation and have the impact on the system yeah. um, is phenomenal. And, you know, Optum's scale and breadth and depth of access is, is tremendous. So... The, 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 very cool. I I, I got to ask you though. It's uh, it's a whole different ball game, right? I mean, you get to be your own boss when you're running your own company, and you're you get acquired by what is a very large mm-hmm. company. Yeah. Um, I can't even tr- keep track how big Optum is. Yeah. It's so big. Um, was it fun to stay? What what made you want to stay? I mean, yeah. Was it was it sort of like oh I don't have to worry about raising money anymore? 
Yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't have to worry about all these things well, that you have to do in a startup. Yeah, like, actually, you know, I think raising money is exciting. It, well, um, it should be exciting. When it works. Yeah, yeah, when uh, and I had great investors um, between um, Northbridge, now Flair, and General Catalyst, and Bain, and Lyrinc, and uh, several other strategics in the B round. But um, there's a, a lot of um, energy and passion and emotion that goes to building a company. Um, quite a few of the people on the management team and below have been with me for over 30 years in multiple startups, so it's a bit of a family. We, we know how we complement each other. Right. Um, but you get to a point in your career after 35 years where you need to ask the question, what are you trying to accomplish? And when I started seeing the scale of uh, Humedica as Optimanalytics grow from you know where it was to where it is today, and then you sort of step back and say, you're actually impacting the healthcare system at scale, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. And so you're working with the who's who in the healthcare system. You have tremendous access, and um, you're actually touching more lives and more patients, and you're growing faster. So for me, it was a little bit about a different journey. Um, having flexed the startup muscle over 35 years, I actually um, did this with the intention of playing it out as opposed to flipping in and doing another one. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Most guys get out of there in about six months to yep, a year. Yep. And the team again. stayed. Yeah, the team stayed. Cool. So when you think about innovation at scale, mm-hmm. and I love that term, um, and you think about what you've accomplished, give me a sense of what you think the, the great innovation that you were able to sort of bring out of this thousand-person team mm-hmm. uh, where you had large data sets, obviously, to work on, large computing capabilities to, mm-hmm. to draw from. So, you know, um, my co-founder, one of my co-founders and I balanced each other well. I like to say that what happened was um, 51% luck and 49% vision. She kicks me under the table and says, speak for yourself. (laughs) Um, I think that in many ways um, what she'll say, and I I agree, um, is that we spawned an industry because there were a lot of point solutions at the time, right? But this wasn't being done at scale, and the country and the healthcare system needs it to be done at scale. Since then, you've seen what's happened in the proliferation of other companies. They've been born, they've been acquired, some are still independent, some have IPO'd. And so um, we took a gamble before health reform, before Obamacare, before the Affordable Care Act, and uh, it was a, a belief system we had that this was coming. So I think that we've contributed to the industry. Um, we've got a phenomenally talented workforce. Um, we're building and innovating. We're on a path to continued growth, and we've become um, a strategic asset within the Optum family in a business that is approaching $100 billion, just Optum. Um, and I was so, searching for that number, $100 billion. I'm glad. Uh, it's <laughs> I'm 80. Glad um, <laughs> and the 100 is not a projection. We're a public right. company. But yeah. as I've watched the growth, being a data guy, I smell it. Yeah, yeah. coming and it's it's big and so um, we tend to now have conversations across the country with organizations that are consolidating that are integrating that are having significant impact and um, you know it's really meaningful right. and uh, at some point the journey's got to be meaningful not just valuable right um, so I know you're you're we want to talk about what, what your future is but I want to ask you sort of a question that I get asked a lot and it goes something like this. So don't take it personally. I get asked this question as well. 
It's like, oh, you got all this computing, you got all this data, you got all this analytics. Yeah. And uh, how come healthcare costs keep going up? Mm-hmm. You know, and I always say, well, imagine what it would be like if we didn't, right? <laughs> yeah. So are we, are we sort of just catching a rising, an ever-rising tide and really not able to bring it, bring it down? Um, so maybe we've had an impact in dampening it, but we don't know it because it seems like there's a regression to, say, 6 8% medical mm-hmm. inflation. Mm-hmm. Every now and then we have a good year, then we have a bad year. Yep. So that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of answers, and I'll give you several, and I don't think it's any one in isolation. Um, I think the first answer is we've actually just begun. Um, the capabilities out there are not yet creating scalable return on investment the way they will in the next five to ten years. That's number one. This just is beginning. Number two, the move to value versus fee-for-service is being talked about a lot, but if you actually study the data and look at the percentage of the healthcare system that's shifted to at-risk, value-based, outcomes-based, it's really small. That's a 10- to 20-year journey, not a 1- to 2-year journey. And so, in fact, the majority, and I don't mean 50%, I mean way above that, of health systems in this country are still fee-for-service. If you take California and southern Florida out of the equation, it's probably 90%. Correct. So I think the incentives have to get aligned to focus and harness and motivate. So that's number two. Um, Number three... You know, as our MIT health economist talked about this morning, one of the reasons is because this country can afford it. And so you, you make do, all the mistakes we can afford to make. Well, I don't mean it that way. I mean that some of the really expensive health care for a small percentage of the population is still in the system as a privilege and a choice. Right. And so, in, you know, I have relatives in Canada. Um, when certain things happen, they don't have access. Here we have access. So I think that that's not going away. And so do I think there's a tipping point coming where the capability that we have, the data, the technology, the incentive systems, the transition to value is going to actually have an impact? Yes, but I don't think it's in the next, I don't think the acceleration is in the next couple of years. I think it's a, it's a decade-plus journey. Yep. I yep. do. And if we're lucky, we'll still be doing this, right? Uh, We will definitely be doing it. I think there's more happening in digital health um, now than in the last 35 years of my career. When I see these 25-year-old CEO entrepreneurs, I'm like, man, I was too early. Um, (laughs) Because they have the world at their fingertips. There's so much opportunity. Um, And so the technology, the cloud computing, the information highway that's been laid down, the cognitive computing, the AI... All of that is coming together in a way that wasn't possible before that information was out there. So, you know, look, I, you know, we explore this at Healthogy through our podcast and through a lot of programming, through investing, and, uh, and obviously taking a good sampling of the industry. And all we see is there's you know, thousand plus companies out there that are doing things of interest. And so, um, so I know a little bit of a secret about what you're up to. So why don't you, you know, you seem to have an interest in this area. So you're about to make a little bit of a career shift. So what am I up to? So in an hour or two, I'm going out to dinner. It's my triplet's 18th birthday. So that's the first thing I'm doing. And then in about nine months, I'll be an empty nester. 
And so between my 23-year-old who's in digital health uh, and uh, my triplets going off to college, I said to myself, what do I do now? And um, so what we're doing is um, we brought on an individual to run the business I've built uh, over the past 10 years. Uh, she started on October 1st, right. and uh, it's a phenomenal addition to the team. Uh, she comes out of uh, the healthcare system, and um, I'm spending the next three months uh, supporting the transition, probably longer. Um, and uh, the conversation that I've had with Optum and United Health Group over the last six to nine months has been to really grab hold of innovation and really participate actively in that ecosystem that's being built out there. And so we are launching Optum Ventures. Um, which I and my co-founder and several other colleagues from Optum will lead, in addition to some outside folks we'll be bringing on as partners. And the entire focus of Optum Ventures is to get back to what I know, which is entrepreneurialism, innovation, but to do it with the scale of Optum and the support of Optum's distribution channel, data assets, technologies, and domain experience, and capital. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm pretty excited about it. It's a way to both um, accelerate my participation in the innovation economy and also pay forward a bit and start supporting entrepreneurs more broadly in the next lap of my career. Great. That's a great, that's a great outcome for you. It sounds like it's going to be It's awesome. Really excited. Really so, excited. Uh, just two more questions. Well, two I've more. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to share with us the type of things that you're interested in, in ultimately partnering and investing with Optum Ventures? The types of ideas that, that, that um, you turned on in terms of the future? So yes, but probably not yet. Okay. Um, but we are we are putting forth an investment thesis that we're working really hard on. Um, you know, you're in the same space, and uh, I want to take a little bit of time before I bring it to the marketplace, but um, we will do it. Uh, well, when you're ready to do that, will you share it with me? We will. Absolutely will. All right. Well, it was great to meet with you. Thank you for your time. Hey, everyone. Tom here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation that Steve had with Michael Weintraub from Optum Analytics and da -da 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 -da, Optum Ventures. It's uh, going to be great to have another uh, strategic investor in the digital healthcare space. Now I'd like to introduce our next uh, conversation. But before I do that, uh, I wanted to uh, tell you that we're working on the content from the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. We'll have some reports that we uh, will compile from the summit, some original interviews that we did, including uh, the two that uh, you're hearing on this podcast today, as well as many others that I did and uh, Stephanie Porcel from our staff did as well. And uh, also wanted to tell you that it'll be available on the Healthogy website. So go to healthogy.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Uh, keep checking that, and we'll be putting content up there. Or, of course, subscribe to the Breaking Health newsletter. We'll send it right to your inbox. You need to go to healthogy.com to sign up for that. We just need your email. And finally, we're uh, working on video presentations of the, uh, of the panels, the entire panels. If you'd like to see those, please uh, do this. Do this one thing for me. Shoot me an email, tom at healthogy.com. Let me know you'd like to see those presentations. We're going to make them available to anyone who has attended the conference. Uh, but if you weren't able to attend for whatever reason but want to uh, catch up on some of the sessions, shoot me an email and uh, we'll hook you up. So now let's get back to this next, this next conversation, rather, with uh, Mudit Garg. The CEO of Analytics MD, uh, Mudit was attending the uh, Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, and uh, we reached out to him because we've uh, been 
very interested in the company and wanted to hear its story. So this is uh, another sit-down that Steve did with uh, Mudit Garg at uh, the Digital Health Innovation Summit on November 2nd in Boston. Rudy Garg, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Steve, for having me today. Yeah, the Digital Healthcare Innovation Conference Summit. So uh, good to have you here. Absolutely. Is this your first time here? My first time here. I've absolutely loved the day. Yeah. Um, in some ways, wish it was longer, though I know many of us wouldn't be here if it was longer, but I've really enjoyed the day. We did a good job. We had the governor of Massachusetts here. Fantastic. He was His, his insights, there's very few people who probably understand the government and the healthcare as well as he does. He does. He yeah. seems to get it both ways. I I don't know if he's uh, going to run for president or not, but uh, he probably... I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I would, I, I, I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so you're running a company, Analytics MD. That's right. And um, we both came into sort of knowing who one another were a couple of years ago as you Absolutely. started to get get going. Um, we, we know what you're up to from the title of the company, but um, talk to me about um, how you... Uh, decided to do the crazy thing, yeah. which is uh, start you know, a business, start a start a business, and be responsible for paying yourself a salary. Absolutely, and yeah. uh, many people uh, may not. Uh, it was it was probably harder even on the family than it was. Yeah, yeah. To the make family this crazy is like decision. what you know. What, what are you doing? But yeah. um, you know, it was about probably a decade ago that I was working in a hospital. It was in rural California. Um, I was shocked by the inefficiencies, the chaos, the usual stuff. But what? What really struck me the most at that time was this, uh, this sense that we were failing the front lines, that yeah. they were being forced to surmount obstacles completely out of their control, day in and day out. And data was an extreme example of that, yeah. where we have just, last decade, asked people to enter data into EMR systems and staffing systems and billing systems, but that data hasn't come back to help anyone. At best, we've been getting dashboards and reports. It's been good for the EHR. It's been good for the EHR. EHR, But (laughs) as as an end end user, I'm getting bombarded by data and I don't have time to look at it. And at best, if I look at it, it gives me a view into the rear view mirror. So that that is what inspired me to say there's got to be a different way. If if you, that was the excitement around predictive analytics in the beginning and the promise with the huge amount of data that we have now extracted and, and gotten. Uh, the computing power, the algorithms. But the frustration still was that is not enough to shape the actions of the people we need to shape the actions of without adding work to them. That is what inspired me. And it wasn't, it wasn't a straight linear path to figuring it out. It took, yeah. no, no. <laughs> took several steps and several um, iterations along the way. But I think the right answer is now emerging where we take cognitive load off of the end user while providing them insights that they can act on in the moment. So let's you know I, I look at a hospital and say this is like running like a small <laughs> infantry a like an army there's a, there's people everywhere there's, people, there's yeah. a lot of action going on there isn't often someone directly in command although theoretically the doctor's orders are being followed and then there's a bunch of data that gets collected and it's not clear to me what happens to that data and it's not clear to me that it ever gets organized in a forum that it creates a lot of value until maybe somebody questions a clinical decision or somebody uh, decides to sort of improve a process. So when you start to work with a customer, do you first assemble the data? Is that the first task at hand? Yeah, and, and actually one of the points I wanted to ma- mention as you were saying this that came to mind is 
the other the other insight was it wasn't as much the medicine that was behind the times as everything else around it. The medicine's wonderful, right? I it, mean, the, the doctor is the quarterback of the medicine. There's the one third that's not medicine, right? Right. They do a great job of that. But how do you manage and orchestrate the rest of it so that we can allow them to have the flexibility to do the best job they can? Right. And so when we start with with an entity with a customer, actually we don't start from data. We don't start from predictions. We don't start from algorithms. We start from decisions. What are the decisions that you want to have happen reliably, consistently, that can prevent a bad situation from happening? And we've chosen to start with decisions that are traditionally more operational, non-clinical. Because my belief is that if we can just take a lot of that burden off of these end users, they know the right medicine. They train for 10 plus years, every one of them, to make the best clinical decisions. But the rest of it is what we need to fix. So we really start with decisions. What decisions are we trying to make? Because so give me an example else. of a decision. So l- let, me, let me give an example of a decision. Um, and in, in the chaos that you were just describing, the emergency room is a great microcosm of that chaos. If you ever walk into one, there are a few people who are in charge of saying, I need to be the manager of making sure this does not devolve into a really bad situation. And they, they're dealing with that day in, day out. What that means is you don't want lines waiting out the door. You don't want patients waiting, not being seen. That's both bad risk, bad patient care, bad experience. One of the common decisions you are anticipating is, am I going to run out of capacity? Am I just not going to have the capacity to treat these patients? Because that's when the worst happens. Um, Constantly thinking of that is very hard. Constantly paying attention to that is very hard. The decision is, should I refocus certain specific resources in the moment? Um, And they've had surge plans and things for a while. But how do you realize when is the right time to do it? So what our system will do is look at how cold is it outside? What's the weather like? What is happening in, in the ER? Dr. Smith's working. Um, four patients are in the waiting room. All those factors. And if we have a high confidence that that is going to require now an action now so that an hour from now a bad situation does not happen, then we will nudge the end user, the charge nurse, the house supervisor, the EVS lab, whoever is able to most affect the bottleneck, that will prevent the bad situation from happening. And we have countless examples like that of what the system monitors in real time, ingests, learns from, and then nudges people to take action on. So is it the system by itself that's doing the nudging? Is it the system, the system in combination does. with the s- people? The system does the nudging by itself, but it enables a social dialogue with the operator to take the action. So, um, you know, there's a big debate in the world of um, intelligence about AI or IA, right. artificial intelligence or intelligent augmentation. I'm a big believer that we need to augment before we get to the self driving well, AI is a cooler word. It's a cooler word, absolutely. But it probably isn't the right word. <laughs> I don't think it's the right word. Um, we need to augment the capacity of people to take actions, to take the right actions without increasing their load. If you take, if I asked you to go straight to a self-driving car when you didn't have a GPS, that could figure out the route. When you didn't have your cruise control. Right. And when you didn't have the lane... Yeah, lane I would get anxiety. Right. I, I have anxiety, anxiety just thinking but, about it. But, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, I want to at least be able to watch where the car is driving me. Absolutely. So yeah. what I think we need to do first is keep let people keep the hands on the steering wheel. Yeah. But do all the complexity behind the scenes, compute the traffic, compute the optimal route, compute where you should go, and just nudge you. Like, right. I think now is the time to turn right. And then let you make the decision. Right. And since the system's smart, it learns with what you choose to do. If you chose to go straight... Hmm, and actually worked out better. All right, I got to I got to make note of that, and I, I am going to improve off of that. Right. That that is a dream. That is, I think, what is going to make a sustainable way of using data to continuously improve outcomes, and that's that's what we are hoping for. 
So I'm, uh, I'm reading this book called How Not to Be Wrong. <laughs> Do you know the book I'm talking about? I, I, I don't know about it's the about, book, but that, that, uh, I like that, the title. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's basically try to make everything into a math problem. But understand uh, what the math problem means. So you can take a computer, you can take data, right? You can do a whole bunch of interesting things. And you can come up with correlations and predictions that have no actual affiliation with real-world activity or no real-world benefit. So how do we train computer models to To do that? To to sift through that and be logical in real world. And I think that's a very good balance. And I'll give you two examples on the opposite side of the coin for that. One is I always tell customers, there is correlation between solar spots and the stock market. Sure. But would I invest my money into the stock market? No, right. <laughs> based on based the solar, on solar spots. spots. No, I wouldn't. Well, so, um, you don't know what you're doing then. Right, exactly. A lot of people making money on that strategy. So it is important <laughs> the universe of what we consider in marries the human intuition, yeah. but doesn't rely entirely on the human intuition. Because I'll talk about the flip side of that. One of the big beliefs in any of the years you go around the country is on full moon, full moon nights. I, and then I had this, the first time I ever, we ever did a prediction and the nurse was telling me that, did you take the full moon effect into account? I didn't know if he was pulling my leg or if he was being serious. He was, he was being serious. So we had, we had that as a feature. It has never panned out up till now. We actually just recently, there was a Wall Street Journal article on this. So we redid the math and rechecked it. Still has never been picked up as a real signal. But that's the, that's the beauty of the human intuition, but has to be combined with rigorous statistical testing of if it actually pans out or not. Um, we, we can't do one without the other. We can't let the algorithms train on anything and everything because they will pick up spurious correlations. But we also can't only rely on rules-based algorithms that are oftentimes only driven by our intuition. And very often in an environment where the population is changing and the underlying data is changing, right. are very fragile and break very quickly. So, so that is the balance of the two that I think we need to strike. Cool. So um, how's your business doing? You've been, how long have you been in business now? Um, we've been in business about, with the product we're talking about, about two years. Okay. Um, last 12 months have been phenomenal. Um, it all started from being able to sustainably drive outcomes. What changed, what, what sparked the growth, was being able to show evidence that we are able to drive sustainable outcomes for our customers in a repeatable way without burning out the providers. And, and once that has happened, that we've seen um, ac- academic health systems, some of the top ac- academic health systems, all the way to community health systems in rural Arkansas, in Ohio, in Missouri, all the way to 40-bed critical access hospitals, all be able to use this method of approaching data and approaching change and have reliable outcomes. And that's, that's really changed for the good. And, and there's plenty to solve going forward for us, but... Um, I believe if we keep that as a true north of how do we reliably drive outcomes through data and how do we make data an influencer of action, right. not just data for data's sake, then hopefully you'll be able to continue that growth as well. Terrific. Last question for you. Um, sort of give us some advice on, uh, on, the, on the life cycle of a startup and, and what, the, what the feeling is building a company and kind of get to sort of create your own world at some level. You so know, what kind of world are you creating there? You know, I, I, there's, there's a, I had a baby 10 months ago. Oh, congratulations. Ago. That's always a good um, time. And I spend a lot of time in hospitals. And that's that. right. <laughs> it was actually good because we delivered in the hospital where the user product, and it was, it was amazing to yeah. see the users. But um, I think in a lot of ways, building a startup is like that. The, the, the joy is, is infinite. The high is very, very high. 
but it takes a lot from you as well. It does. Um, and the, from the life cycle of startup, one of the one of the people I really respect told me it's like a marathon, except that as you run, it never ends. And as you run, you kind of just look around people falling down and and dying. Right. But the one who perseveres has a clear true north can win in the end. And if we if we learn and we we stay humble, I love the point that um, Dan made. We stay humble, we learn, and we change uh, along that way with keeping the core principles the same. Life cycle, the startup eventually leads to a much bigger outcome and certainly more satisfying for me personally. Um, but it's a lot of hard work along the way. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to find people to do it with you, right? Absolutely. Cannot be done by myself. I mean, the number one lesson is um, for us as a company is intellectual honesty across the organization. Everything is transparent across the organization. Problems are talked about immediately as soon as they're discovered. They're not... Because if that is the case, we talked about yet last night, it's not me solving the problem anymore. I get amazing ideas from the entire team, everyone's collective minds thinking about it. And we have the smartest people, so why shouldn't we use their collective minds for every problem I face? My cognitive load, as I was just talking about, yeah. is a lot lower in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. And li- likelihood of getting the right answer is way higher. So that's, that's, that's probably the biggest and most important piece. Okay. So how do people find out about your company? Website? Website. Twitter account? Anything? Certainly, certainly... Um, Info at analyticsmd.com, mudatanalyticsmd.com, you're welcome to reach out to me. The website's a great place um, to to see about us. Our customers um, are, are great to talk to as well. Uh, but the website's probably the best starting point. Cool. Nice to meet you. Very nice, very nice meeting you again, Steve. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, thank you. All right, folks, that is a wrap of this very special Breaking Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed these two conversations. Steve Krupa, great job. Uh, thank you to Michael and Mudit for making yourselves available during the conference. And thanks, of course, to our Breaking Health listeners for joining us. Uh, we'll go back to our uh, normal format next week. Uh, and don't forget, if you uh, want to uh, receive video presentations of the panel discussions that we had at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, shoot me an email, tom at healthogy.com. If you want to uh, get the content sent direct to your inbox, these are our uh, original interviews and reports from the conference You'll need to get the Breaking Health newsletter, so go to healthogy.com and sign up for that. And uh, also, while I'm asking favors or offering you things, actually, I haven't asked you a favor yet, I will do this one favor. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, we'd love to know about it. Go on iTunes or any of the, the formats that you use to uh, listen to this podcast and just give us a quick rating. And uh, please uh, take a minute and just write a quick comment about the podcast. We're uh, always trying to make this better and uh, would very much like to hear what you have to say. So thanks again for joining us today and tune in next week for another tale of innovation on the Breaking Health Podcast.